So, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Good evening, in fact. My name is Ricky Burdett, uh, and I run LSE Cities. I'll come to that in a moment. And on behalf of a whole host of us at the LSE, uh, very much uh, welcome you to uh, this lecture and this discussion tonight. <clears throat> in the back is Craig Calhoun, uh, director of the LSE. In the front is Richard Sennett. Uh, one of my colleagues, and uh, Craig is sitting at the back because he has to leave at 7, but not, he's not making a statement. Um, <clears throat> it's great. Uh, what is very important about tonight is not only that we will have, I think, a very interesting conversation and presentation about a book, um, Land of Seven Rivers, uh, by Sanjeev Sanya, but it actually brings together a series of uh, research centers at the LSE, uh, who, in fact, are jointly sponsoring uh, this event. So you see... Uh, Sanjeev and Anshu, you bring together people within an institution who, you know, sometimes speak to each other and sometimes don't. Um, and that's the Asia Research Center and the India Observatory. Uh, Nick Stern, uh, Ruth, and others are very involved in that, and it's very important for us to connect and connect on these themes which really do uh, go at the heart of some of the work that uh, we do at LSE Cities. Now, the structure of uh, this evening is very straightforward. Uh, we have a book presentation uh, and, in fact, followed by book signing outside, uh, which is, as I say, uh, an explanation by Sanjeev uh, Sanyal of a series of ideas and concepts that he's kept very much at the forefront of his mind for a number of years. In between, he does a little bit of, sort of consultancy and works for a bank or two uh, as a global strategist. But his real interest has been in understanding what his country, what India is about. And for us, in a very interesting way at LSE Cities, it's about linking the geography of place, and in this case a nation, and its social uh, and cultural impacts. That's what the book is about, and it's a fascinating read. Uh, those are exactly the themes, the social world and the physical world, at the heart of the research that LSE Cities has done for now eight years with the support uh, of uh, Deutsche Bank and the Alfred Herrhausen Society. So that links us directly to the person who's chairing the event, Anshu Jain, who's co-chair of the management board. But in a way, more importantly for us tonight, Anshu, you're the chair of the Alfred Herrhausen Society, which uh, has funded our program and continues to fund it uh, to allow us to do exactly that sort of uh, cutting edge, I hope, interdisciplinary uh, work. Um, so the structure, as I say, is that Anshu will introduce a little bit. Sanjeev will then speak for about um, <clears throat> 30 minutes or so. Uh, we will then open up uh, the discussion with questions from the floor. So please start preparing some tough questions for uh, these two uh, speakers and moderators. Um, and we will then go outside, uh, hope that you all join us for the drinks and uh, possibly buy as many copies as possible of this wonderful book. So, um, once again, welcome to the LSE, welcome to uh, LSE Cities, and could you please join me in welcoming Anshu Jain. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Ricky, and uh, warm welcome to all of you. Good evening. Delighted to be asked to come say a few words today on this occasion. Now, um, before I talk about my impressions of the book, uh, let me share with you a few of my impressions of the author, Sanjeev. The subtitle of the book is A Brief History of India's Geography. 
Um, now, I've known Sanjeev for a while, and I haven't thought of him as a historian, nor as someone that had a mastery of geography. I've actually thought of him as an economist. So that, of course, makes him a polymath, uh, and someone that has expertise in all of those areas. Sanjeev, I went on to Google, as one does, um, to learn a bit about you, having known you for many years, and I have to formally introduce him. Um, and I went on to Wikipedia. I did not realize you and I went to the same college. Yes. Um, <laughs> Sridham College um, in India. Of course, uh, you then went on to be educated in a far more impressive fashion than I was able to, a uh, Rhodes Scholar and so on and so forth. But really, my impressions of Sanjeev are very personal. Um, and for those of you that are about to read his book, I think it's important to know a bit about the author. For an economist, Sanjeev is really a storyteller. So I remember on countless occasions, especially when I was on my way into India, Sanjeev would be the one who would put the briefing notes together, and they always read like a rip-roaring uh, novel more than a dry recitation of facts. He always managed to surprise me, which given the topic, uh, which I fancied myself knowing a thing or two about, would always be uh, pleasant and refreshing. There was always mischief. Um, in fact, especially when it came to the Indian government, he would always tell me two or three things which were sure to antagonize and annoy them. And very often, there would be uh, more than a trace of humor in what was uh, an extremely dry subject. Hence, I should say, when I began reading the book, I wasn't surprised to see all of those themes intertwine. So let me share some impressions, and I'll promise you there won't be any plot spoilers, nothing uh, that I will say ought to take away from your enjoyment of the book. Um, the first theme, it surprised me. There's a lot that I realized I did not know about the history of my own country. Um, and if I were to pick one or two things out, the theme which really struck me as fascinating are the two best uh, legends out of India, the Mahabharat and the Ramayana, have a clear geographic um, bent to them. Didn't realize that. Mahabharat runs east to west or west to east, as the case might be. And the Ramayana is an epic north-south story. Now, I've read it countless times, and yet that dimension had never occurred to me. The second thing which struck me was, Sanjeev, your passion for wildlife. Again, a theme which you and I share in common. And you've managed to surprise me with knowledge about a topic which I would have given myself a very high score on, which is, by the way, a theme that I should return to uh, a couple times, my um, overestimation of my own knowledge. But the fact that the Gangetic dolphin uh, has a twin in the Indus River Hence your speculation that perhaps there was a third body of water which might have connected the mm -hmm. two at some point. Absolutely fascinating. Distressingly for me, I did not realize that tigers predated lions in the country. I would have thought that would be exactly the other way around. And then you raised a question which you didn't quite answer, which I'm still really puzzled by. Why is it that the icon of India, which is the tiger, doesn't show up on any of the seals, and it's actually the lion which you would associate with Africa, which is the subject of all the seals. In fact, the Reserve Bank of India currency note as yeah. well has a lioness yes. on it. Yeah. Fascinating. India only has 200 lions left, and they're actually precariously clinging on to the northwestern tip or the midwestern tip of Gujarat. And yet, when you go back to Indian folklore, it's the lion which dominates the tiger. Uh, in a lot of our folklore. So perhaps you can spend a few minutes and explain to us why that might be the, that might be the case. You reminded me um, 
that the relationship between India and China goes back thousands of years. And again, you reminded me that as recently as 250 years ago, the combined economies of these two countries accounted for well over 50% of the world's GDP. So circa 1750, I suppose, would be the yeah. peak of India and not quite the peak of China, but a good time for China as well. More than half the world's GDP coming from these two countries. We have the Industrial Revolution. It craters from well over 50% to barely 5%. And of course, as we all know, in the next 20 years, these two countries will once again account for more than the, uh, half the world's uh, GDP. So all of that, to me, made fascinating reading. But I think the theme which has probably struck me and resonated with me the most in your book, Sanjeev, is this recurrent theme of urbanization. Rick, you talked about it. And again, when I think about India, I don't quite think of, of ancient Indian history being so much about urban clusters because you know, I sort of grew up thinking India is really a country which lives in farms and villages. And yet, when you go back, and it's not just Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, but Takshashila, Patliputra, cities which no longer exist, some that do, accounting for such a high percentage of Indian wealth and really such a high percentage of our cultural development, again, is a theme which, which resonated with me. Not the least because when we at Deutsche Bank think about the next 10, 15, 20 years for our industry, What's clear to us is that of all the major themes that people talk about, the clear phenomena of urbanization, the fact that something like 600 million people will move out of rural areas into cities in India and China alone. That's double the population of the U.S., which will be urbanized for the first time, represent an incredible opportunity, obviously for us banks, because there's lots of financing needs, there's, there's uh, all these customers coming into our net for the first time, but also some ferocious challenges, and that's really what the Herrhausen Society LSE theme is all about. So in some ways, there's a confluence of a lot of different themes that came together for me as I read the book. But enough about me. You're not here to listen to me tonight. I don't want to stand between you and the real star of the evening. Sanji, floor is yours. Thank you, Anshu. Let me begin by thanking LSE for really putting an amazing event together. Thank you, Ricky. Um, and of course, a big thank you to Anshu for taking time out from what I know is an impossibly uh, uh, busy schedule. And uh, not just today, but uh, on several occasions, uh, making time and giving me support for my various mad ventures, including this book. So a big thank you to you as well. And of course, a big thank you to the audience for making it here today in what is a really cold day. I know I was outside today, and I know it was some effort, uh, I'm sure, on your part to have, uh, uh, to have come here today. Now, the first question that I'm asked whenever <clears throat> I'm asked about my book is, why a history of geography? Why bother? And the reason for that is that most histories are really written, and this is really not just about Indian history, but, but it is particularly true of Indian history, that most histories are written about kings and dynasties and battles and uh, reform, uh, 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 you know, uh, political events of various kinds. But that is not the only way to tell a history, because history can also be told in terms of the rise and fall of cities, 
It can be ta- talked about in terms of the way child, uh, the wildlife of, uh, of countries change, how trade routes change. Uh, you have now have phenomenal genetic data worldwide on who we are as a species and how we spread. And so what I've tried to do in this book is really take many of these themes for one country, India, and try and explore them. So what I have done is essentially tell a chronological story of India, except that the characters are not uh, kings, uh, necessarily kings. They are kings, etc. of course, that, that are important to history. But in fact, tried to tell him from a somewhat different angle. So for example, uh, if you're taking the British period, uh, of Indian history. You could, you could talk about it in terms of you know, a series of Afghan wars and the Morley or Iminto reforms of 1909 or about the independence movement, all of which are, of course, very important events. But you can also think about it in terms of how the British mapped India or how did they build the railways or how did they build Calcutta, Bombay, Madras, and New Delhi ultimately. And what was the impact of the great famines of the 19th century and how they forced migration outwards to Fiji, to Mauritius, to Guyana. And so, in a sense, you can tell the same story with the political characters of the background and many of these other, and I would say geographical, but really it's not just geography from a physical perspective, but also human geography, cultural geography, uh, and so on. So that is basically what I've attempted to do. Now, of course... Any attempt to talk about geography has got to, in some ways, start with the physical geography. So the beginning of the book starts with the tectonic events that led to the creation of what we now know as the Indian subcontinent. The Indian subcontinent, as it turns out to be, used to be stuck to um, Africa several million years ago. And then at some point in time, it broke off and drifted up north and collided with the Asian uh, uh, plate. And this really caused the rise of the Himalayas and created this sort of somewhat, uh, one could say, demarcated uh, landmass that we now call the Indian subcontinent. But that was not the end of the process. And that process goes on. And in fact, many of these geological processes have happened and human beings have witnessed it. So we now live in, of course, as you know, a time of climate change. Whether or not humans caused it or not, I'm not going to get into. But certainly, the climate change has happened many times before and has happened quite well into times when early humans would have witnessed it. So the coastline of India, for example, um, was quite different as recently as eight or 9,000 years ago because during the Ice Age, a lot of water was, of course, stuck in the ice sheets and the water level was significantly below, about 100 meters below where it is now, as a result of which the coastline of India would have been 100 kilometers out from where it is now. And when the Ice Age ends, the coastline is completely flooded, and it causes huge amounts of uh, chaos in the lives of the the Neolithic communities that lived along these coastlines. And we now have genetic data which shows that this event... Uh, may have been a very important part of uh, the, the, the churning of um, uh, the genes of who the Indians are. In fact, there is some evidence to suggest that some of these groups who lived along the Indian coastline may have entirely left India and drifted all the way through Central Asia to become today's Eastern Europeans. So it turns out, in fact, I got myself genetically tested through this process, 
uh, that, <laughs> that I am a gene called R1A1. And my closest cousins happen to be Lithuanians and Czechs. But contrary to the old Aryan invasion theory, they were not people coming into India. They were, in fact, leaving India and left India a long time ago. This is not about horses and iron weapons and invasions. This is about tiny bands of Neolithic groups wandering through, discovering that Central Asia has suddenly become warmer and sort of you can live there, and then slowly quarreling over thousands of years to what is now Eastern Europe. So there's a lot of churn that happens. And one of these events uh, led uh, to the flooding of the coastline of India and perhaps pushed some of these groups further up north along a river that is now dry. And they re-established Indian civilization along this river. We know this now as the Indus Valley or Harappan civilization, but it turns out from recent excavations that this civilization was largely based on this dry, dry riverbed and not on the Indus. And our ancient texts tell us that this river was called the Saraswati. And around about 2000 BC, this river dried up because of tectonic and other events. And again, it had cataclysmic effects on uh, our civilization. Many of the people who le lived in these cities left these cities and drifted off towards the Gangetic Plains, triggering off the processes that leads to uh, Indian civilization as we know it today. So this churn has been going on for a very long time. But it's not just about nature. It's also about trade, for example. Ancient India and the Iron Age had two very major um, trade routes. Anshu mentioned the east-west and north-south orientations of the great epics. Now, this is not coincidental because ancient India had two, two great uh, highways along which these epics are oriented. One of them was the Uttarapath, the northern road, which went from what is now Afghanistan across the northern plains to Bengal. And the other was the Dakshinapath, the southern road, which started from Varanasi or thereabouts and made its way all the way down to the southern tip of India. But what is amazing is that these roads are still there. The northern road exists today as National Highway 2. And the southern road today exists as National Highway 7. And they meet, interestingly, at Varanasi, at a place called Sarnath, which is just outside Varanasi. And why is this interesting? It's interesting because in the 6th century BC, Buddha, when he decided to spread his, his message, went there to spread his message. And why did he go there? For an obvious reason, because as a, as, as a crossing point of two major highways, it was the best place to spread your ideas. So Buddha visited this place because it was the crossing point of two major highways. And it remains so today. So even when the British <coughs> built their, um, their railway system in the 19th century, the, the main junction of this uh, railway system was interestingly in the same place, in a place called Mughal Sarai. Some of you will be aware, familiar with it. And Mughal Sarai is, in fact, just uh, you know, uh, a, a few kilometers away from Sarnath. So it's astonishing. For a period of 3,000-plus years, the transportation hub of India has been in the same place. And you can go there and, and see it even today. It's blatantly obvious if you visit it. Because if you go to Sarnath, you, there's the Buddhist excavation site. 
But just outside the excavation site <clears throat> is also a Jain temple. Because not only do the Buddhists consider it sacred, the Jains too consider it sacred. And then you think, why is this place called Sarnath? And it turns out it is just a shortened form of Saranganath, which means Lord of the Deer, which is another name for Shiva. And of course, Varanasi has always been for thousands of years a center of Shaivite worship. So again, it was a center of Shaivite worship as well. And this is, and this is the reason why Buddha, when he visited this place, there was already a, a, a sacred grove of deer at this place. Now again, a lot of things have survived from that time. Just outside, if you went through this village at Sarnath, there is still a small temple to Shiva called the temple to Saranganath. And it's, it's on a mound, and I'm sure if somebody excavates it, they will find that that place is at least 3,000 years old. It hasn't been excavated. I'm quite amazed that there's so much history just lying around not getting excavated in India. But it's amazing that even if you just wander around in these sort of hubs, you can sort of almost smell the history of India. But, of course, trade is not just about the insides of the country. India had been, through a long periods of time, the great mercantile country. Uh, few people realize that the largest Hindu temple in the world is, in fact, not in India, but in Cambodia, the Angkor Wat. And for hundreds of years, there was so much trade between India and uh, Southeast Asia that... Indians would have considered Southeast Asia as being part of their civilization. And this remains such a powerful uh, force to this day that when Indonesia became free, they actually named their country after India. They named their currency, the rupiah, after the Indian rupee. So it, it remains very much a part of living civilizational history. It's not just something that went, you know, something that ha had happened. Uh, I live in a city called Singapore. And even the name Singapore means the lion city in Sanskrit. So this, is, this kind of history remains alive. Now along the coast of India, on the, on, in, in the, on, along the Keralite coast of India, the southern uh, western tip of India, there was for about 1,500 years one of the largest ports in the world. It was called Muziris, or in, um, to the Indians it was called Muchiri. And for a very long time, people wondered where this port was. But in the last uh, decade or so, excavations have shown that this place is just north of Cochin in a place uh, which is now called Patanam. It's a village. But when you visit it again, it's quite amazing that it took so long for the historians to figure out where this place was. Because within walking distance, you have three extraordinary places. You have the place where... St. Uh, Thomas, the apostle, landed. Within maybe a kilometer or so, you have the, the second oldest mosque in the world. Uh, it, this mosque is so old that it was actually built while the prophet was still alive. And in fact, before he had conquered Mecca, i.e. when he was still in Medina. So you have the second oldest mosque in the world. And within, again, a very short distance, you have the one of the oldest Shiva temples in the world. And if you go and look at the carvings, there's a staircase there, which quite clearly looks Southeast Asian. Clearly, these people were also trading with Southeast Asia. I don't know which way the influence of that carving went, but the point is, 
it, it's astonishing to me that it took so long for people to figure out that this must have been an important place at some point in time. Not only that, till the 19th century, this area was, had large Jewish communities also living there. So, as I said, there's a lot of history just simply piled up in India that, um, that sometimes, once you begin to dig into it, uh, it's quite astonishing. It comes all pouring down on you. Now, of course, history carries on. And it's not about ancient history alone. Modern India continues to live and evolve, and its geography keeps changing. Anshu mentioned, of course, that India is now finally urbanizing very rapidly. Well within the lifetime of, uh, in our lifetime, India will be an urban majority country. Hundreds of mil millions of people will move into Indian cities or, or they're, they're, the, the villages they live in will get urbanized. This will be the single biggest human event of the 21st century. Now the process through which this happens is actually quite fascinating. And while I was researching this book, um, I had actually taken a couple of years off from Deutsche Bank to travel around India. And one of the things I did during this period was actually to study the way uh, the area around Delhi was evolving and uh, urbanizing. So I'm going to tell you the rough story of how Delhi expands. It, it, could, it could be applied to many other Indian cities. Not all, but many other Indian cities. So when Delhi expands, for example, it moves into the surrounding countryside. And when it does that, of course... <clears throat> The land, the agricultural land gets acquired by the government or, the, or a company or whoever is developing that land. But the village settlement itself doesn't get acquired. It's legally very complicated to do it. Consequently, it's left alone. And the villagers who live there suddenly notice that there's a lot of construction work happening all around them. But there is no place for the construction workers to live or for the suppliers to set up shop and so on. So what they do is they take the compensation they've just been given and <clears throat> they build all kinds of irregular structures within their village compounds. Because remember, these are rural homes, so they are fairly large. They have cow sheds and other things. And they begin to build these informal structures. And within six months, what used to be a rural village becomes a slum with construction workers and all kinds of people living in them. And the old villagers becoming the slum lords. And this is how things are for some five, six years. At the end of five or six years, the construction ends. And the construction workers go away. Another group of people come and move into this slum. They are drivers, security guards, maids, and such like. This group is more settled. They tend to bring their family in from the villages. This is still a slum. The old villagers are still the slum lords. Uh, but now there is new developments in, this, in, in the, in the um, village. For example, an English medium school will turn up. It's nothing much to write home about, somebody's backyard. But the poor in India use English to climb the social ladder. So this is a very important part of the evolution. And Agarwal sweets will come up somewhere. Over a little, after a little bit of time, there will be maybe some public transport will turn up. And after another 10 years or so, the place will begin to slowly gentrify. Remember, by this time, this village is well within the city limits. And this city, this village now begins to exhibit all kinds of uh, dynamics, depending on what its location is. And slowly, you know, these places begin to take on 
uh, all kinds of different uh, uh, gentrified um, uh, uh, characters. For ex- and those of you who are familiar with Delhi will know what I'm talking about. Just outside the international airport, there is a small village called Mahipalpur. Now, Mahipalpur, till the 80s, was a real village. I mean, there were mustard fields and all kinds of stuff around it. And in the 80s, the land got acquired to build the, the, commu- uh, the, the uh, area that is now known as Vasant Kunj. And by the 90s, essentially, Mahipalpur was a slum. And it remained a slum well into the 2000s. But in the last seven or eight years, those of you who will visit Delhi will know, it has begun to gentrify. You'll see it's, you'll have uh, modcom hotel, this hotel, that hotel, all kinds of tiny hotels, budget hotels of all kinds sprouting up. But through this process, the place is gentrifying and moving up the value chain. The, 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 uh, the old villagers slash slumlords have now become hoteliers. And if you go into any of these hotels, it's quite fascinating. The person who is probably at the front desk is almost certainly the child of a migrant who moved there 20 years ago. He or she can speak a little bit of English and has effectively made the jump into the middle class. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of India, the creation of a completely brand new middle class that is slowly but steadily expanding out and, in, in effect, um, replacing the old middle class from which I, for example, am drawn from. And this process is really the process through which India is moving ahead. If you go to, for example, a call center, uh, 10, 15 years ago, an average call center worker would have been derived from the old middle class. Today, nobody from the old middle class works in a call center. They're all from the new middle class. They're all drawn from the small towns, from the slums. And this process... Of, of churn is again uh, creating a new India. And I think it's fascinating because as this process takes root, um, uh, y- you will also begin not just to see uh, the economic benefits of it, but you will also begin to see major cultural changes. Uh, we see that in Bollywood already, for example. The old middle class like to listen to ghazals and you know, nice uh, uh, songs with tunes derived from classical music. Uh, the new middle class prefers Mudni Badnamhui. But Mudni Badnamhui is a very important part of the evolution of India because it is the music of the Mufassils that is being brought up by this and being naturalized into the mainstream. So whether we like it or not, This is a very important part of India's next sort of step forward. And of course, slums play a very important part in this. This is very critical to understand. People whose impression of slums is derived from uh, watching Slumdog Millionaire completely miss the point. You see, Slumdog Millionaire shows you a slum which is static. The poor remain poor except if they win the lottery. But if you go and spend any time in a slum, the whole point is churn. People move in, but they also move out. People move into slums precisely because they have a fighting chance, or more importantly, their children have a fighting chance of moving out into the middle class. And this process is very important to understand when uh, cities are designed. Um, Because the the slum stage is a very important part of development. And in fact, was true for all countries in some point in their history. I mean, London was full of slums at one point in time. New York was notorious for its slums 100 years ago. So, uh, in some sense, 
dirty as they look, messy as they look. Uh, I hope uh, people in the audience will take, have a little bit more respect for slums when they see one next time. Now, I'm coming to the end of the, my talk, so I'm going to read a little bit from the very, very last part of my book. And the reason I want to do this <clears throat> is that my book is not just about geography and history. It's also about India's civilization and sense of itself. So I'm going to read the very last part of it. As we have seen, despite all this change, Indians have retained an intuitive memory of their civilization. It continues to influence Indian attitudes in surprising ways. A lot can be said <clears throat> about a people from the way they remember their darkest hour. When New York observed an anniversary of 9-11, there is always a somber service, speeches by leading political figures, and so on. Contrast that with how Mumbai commemorated the terrorist attacks of 26 November 2008. A day after the third anniversary, a flash mob of 200 young boys and girls suddenly appeared in the middle of Chhatrapati Shivaji Terminal, a busy train station that had witnessed one of the massacres of that night of horror. The flash mob then proceeded to dance for five minutes to a popular Bollywood number, Rang De Basanti, roughly translates as Color of Sacrifice. Then, when the music stopped, the mob disappeared into the crowd. In any other country, this would have been considered a sacrilege, but in India, it was widely seen as appropriate. The whole episode was filmed and became an instant hit on the internet. But why do Indians remember a horrible event by dancing? The key to resolving the paradox is to realize that Indians view history not in political but in civilizational terms. When Americans raise their flag to the, at the 9-11 sites, they reaffirm the re resilience of their nation state. When Indians dance at the site of the 26-11 massacre, they celebrate the triumph of their civilization. The history of India's geography and civilization reminds us of the insignificance of each generation in the vastness of time. The greatest of India's monarchs and thinkers felt it too, so they left behind their stories and thoughts in ballads, folk tales, epics, and inscriptions. Even if these memories are not always literally true, what matters is that they carry on the essence of Indian civilization. On the island of Mauritius, descendants of Indian immigrants have transferred their memories of the river Ganga to the lake Ganga Talao, that they now hold as just a sacred. A very long time ago, their distant ancestors would have similarly transferred the memory of the Saraswati to the Ganga. Geography is not just about the physical terrain, but also about the meaning that we attribute to it. Thus, the Saraswati flows invisibly at Allahabad. With that, I will stop. Thank you. So I've been asked to moderate uh, the Q&A session. There are no rules um, other than one. Keep your questions short, please, and no speeches. Ask genuine questions. <laughs> and if you can tell us who you are and introduce yourself before you ask the question, the floor is yours. So right in the front. My name is Vijay Srao. Um, no Indian civilization existed prior to 1948. So why are you mentioning Indian civilization? There was no collective identity. Before, before that. In you fact, talk about geography, but why are you mentioning In fact, one of the themes throughout the book is the fact that 
there is more than enough evidence of a collective identity of Indians throughout long periods of time. And this is one of the points I make uh, repeatedly through the book. Uh, it's a colonial idea that India was never had a sense of itself. Uh, and I'm con- that is now, I think, more or less been thrown into the dustbin by Indians, uh, uh, academics and scholars. But I find that it is very often stays alive, even in academia, in, in, in the rest of the world. So one of the things I do talk about in the book is huge amounts of evidence of how Indians repeatedly, uh, monarchs and, uh, and common people, have repeatedly uh, uh, tried to link themselves civilizationally uh, to their predecessors, which gives a very clear sense of national identity. But it is not a nation-state idea of, of nationality. It is a civilizational idea of uh, uh, nationhood, which, incidentally, is not unique to India. There are other countries with it, too. I mean, the Chinese, too, have it. I mean, the Chinese were sometimes united, sometimes divided, but they always had, throughout that period, a sense of nationhood. Uh, The Jews had it for long periods of time, and still do in many ways. Um, The ancient Greeks had it. I mean, they fought amongst themselves all the time, but whenever the Persians turned up, they all ganged up. Uh, so, and perhaps the European Union project is an example of a sense of civilization. <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps, wait, perhaps the British have a problem with that. <laughs> That's the Indian Union, and you're saying European Union. It's the same kind of story. It's a narrative. It's trying to create, uh, create something. So that is one of the themes in the book is that it, is, it, it does exist. Uh, and surely, I mean, to some extent, whether or not we think of ourselves as a nation depends on what Indians think. And I'm an Indian. Surely, if I think it exists, it exists. <laughs> I really enjoyed your observation of the cycle of the slums. And I'm sure that in other countries, too, similar cycles exist. And I've spent some time in the slums of Rio and in South Africa, in the townships. And um, time and again, people have asked me a question that I'm going to turn around and ask you. Why is it that the Indian slums are devoid of the violence that's often experienced in some of these other places? It's a very good question, and the answer to that is flow. You see, the reason Indian slums are not as dangerous as the slums of South, South Africa or uh, South America is that people move in, but they have a fighting chance of getting out. They, they don't, so that keeps them, essentially, they see that as a temporary phase in their life that keeps them law-abiding, hard-working, and so on. Now, this would have been true of, for example, South America in the 50s and 60s when these slums emerged. But then the problem was that growth collapsed in these countries from into the 70s and 80s. And so the flow simply stopped. So this is one of the very important thing to understand about slums. The thing that keeps slums going is flow. And if you shut down this flow for whatever reason, um, then obviously these aspirations are shattered. And it becomes a very different ballgame. Sanjeev, can I challenge you as, yes, uh, despite sure. my position up here in solidarity <laughs> with you? So what you're saying in a way is that it's economic uh, upside or hope 
that keeps violence at a minimum. I'm not sure that's the case. If I think about New York and Harlem, uh, and I lived there for, for 10 to 15 years, while New York itself was resurgent, the U.S. economy was doing well, L.A., South Central, and so on and so forth. Are you sure there aren't cultural and religious aspects here as well that might have something to do with this? Brazil's growing incredibly uh, well, in fact, growing in some ways faster and better than India, and yet the slums around Rio are among the most dangerous in the world. Are you sure that there's more to this, there isn't more to this than just economics? Well, I'm simplifying here. Nonetheless, is Rio's slums becoming worse now? Because remember, they became dangerous at a certain point in time. I don't know. We visited the uh, ones at Sao Paulo uh, if, uh, a couple of years ago as part of uh, Urban Age, and one of the things that came through there was, in fact, in recent times, this is in the last few years, they've actually become more habitable. They used to be much, much worse if you went there a decade ago or two decades ago when they were really dangerous. They are still dangerous, but they have become much less dangerous as growth has taken and, and the flow of people has begun to move again. Uh, but it is critical, I think, that people have aspirations to move out. So, for example, in South Africa, one of the problems is, of course, racial, that people do not feel that they can easily move into the middle class because of a number of historical reasons. Uh, uh, and consequently uh, express themselves in different ways. This would be true maybe even in Harlem, where maybe uh, the local uh, racial mix does not feel that they have a fighting chance that within their generation they or their children will make it into the middle class. And consequently that flow has been disrupted. Second row. Hi, I'm uh, Alex. I so Benedict Anderson talks about nation states as being formed from imagined communities that, and, and he cites the examples of language, religion, um, and sort of common uh, geography. But India has so many different regions, so many different languages, so many different religions, um, yet you can talk about the Indians as, as a civilization. What is it that, that joins them if it's not language or religion? Well, a mix of all these things. Um, it is a sense of common identity. Uh, of course, for a long period of time, religious identity would also be a part, in fact, is a very important part of it. Uh, it doesn't mean, however, that everybody agrees with it all the time. Uh, it, the fact that the, the problem with a, nation, a civilizational nationhood is that, of course, people disagree with it. And in fact, uh, India was um, partitioned uh, in 1947 because of differences in perception of what Indian nationhood meant. Uh, so it is a very real thing. It doesn't always mean everybody agrees on it. As you can see, you actually can go through major cataclysmic uh, you know, partition of India happened because of it. And in fact, if you read Jinnah, you will see Jinnah explicitly makes the case for Pakistan as a civilizational case. That, of course, requires you to also accept that there is a civilizational case for India. Of course, he separates the two, but it is a civilizational case. Cricket and Bollywood for me. <laughs> In the middle. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm an LSE undergraduate uh, in my third year. I was, you mentioned that you did not want to go into the issue of climate change, but you at the same time talked about the massive genetic, civilizational, um, historical churning that's gone on as a result of previous climate shifts, tectonic shifts. 
Um, do you think that, what extent do you think, uh, how do I put this, that the effects of climate change will be predictable in a manner based on examination of past shifts? And what do you think those shifts will be? That's a tough one. <laughs> but two levels. Now, there are two, two issues here. Uh, the first uh, is whether or not climate change happens or, from time to time and whether or not human beings are causing this one. Uh, the second issue is a much more complicated one, which I have not at all dealt with in my book. Uh, and there's a lot of debate, I'm sure, that you read in the newspapers about. But climate change does happen from time to time, and they have severe impacts on the world. Uh, this is the point I was, I was trying to make here. Um, good and bad. Um, but the fact is that it, if we are indeed going through a, uh, another round of climate change, human-induced or not, um, we will, as a species, be forced to adapt to it. Uh, and we should, in some ways, um, uh, look on it as essentially a... If you, I mean, sure, it, it'll, be, it, it'll be a painful thing when it happens, but it is something in, in some ways inevitable. You know, uh, we have gone through, in fact, many sub-cycles as well, which people forget. Um, in the Middle Ages, uh, Britain was for a period warm enough that you could grow wine here. Uh, people forget that. So even if you didn't go through into an ice age, you can actually go through very, very large uh, variations, even naturally, without any human intervention. Hi, my name is uh, Sachin. Uh, one question, I actually want to know your thought process. Like, at what stage did you decide that this is, the, this is the topic that I want to cover? I want to write a book on a brief history of India's geography. So, like, what went into your mind? Like, did you have a lot of other ideas in your head that, okay, you know, I want to actually write a book, I have several ideas, and then I pick one, and this is the one. So, I want to try, try and understand the thought process. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair question. Why is an economist going around writing random books on history of geography? Um, actually, it brings together many of my uh, hobbies, to be frank. I happen to collect antique maps of India for a long time. So, I've, so I, I just like maps. I like traveling. I like wildlife. Uh, and I like studying cities. Uh, so they were sort of dis disparate hobbies of mine at various points. I've studied, written about them, collected things. So... At some point in time, I had collected enough material in running around in my head that I saw, and um, I thought it's about time to put it down on paper. So I actually uh, took time, a sabbatical of two and a half years from Deutsche Bank, moved back to India, took my family back, uh, and we traveled all over India, from Ladakh to Kanyakumari, from Gujarat to the Northeast, uh, collecting material for a lot of the stuff I've written. So if you read my book, you'll see... I would say something like 80% of the places mentioned in my book are actually have physically visited myself. Um, and then that's the process through which I wrote it. Uh, so I had by and large got it into some reasonable shape by early 2011. Um, and yeah, and then we edited it and so on. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Back left. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask, so you made this case for the sort of uh, collective national 
uh, identity that you know encompasses all these all this uh, enormous diversity. But I, I'd like to ask you, how do you think that the rise of um, Hindu um, fundamentalism and nationalism that we've seen um, in the in recent um, decades sort of uh, clashes with this idea. Now that we might have a um, you know a rise for um, prime ministerial race uh, where the BJP might be um, emerging very strongly, do you think that they can accommodate this kind of um, national identity that you're um, putting forward the case for in their political um, rhetoric um, and in, in, in that uh, case uh, will that be the success okay let me understand you seem uh, to see this is the thing that when you're thinking of a civilizational nationhood mm-hmm. as opposed to the nation state yeah. the problem with civilization of course is that it's a vague amorphous idea even if a lot of people subscribe to it it doesn't mean that it has got hard boundaries uh, it So when I'm making the case that India has a sense of civilizational nation, it doesn't mean that it means the same thing to everybody. It may mean Bollywood to somebody. It may mean cricket to somebody. uh, And uh, it may mean um, uh, religion to somebody. Um, To somebody, it may just mean a passport, just a legal document. Um, So, And incidentally, that keeps evolving. At different points in time, different people will think of um, it in different ways. So, as I said, I think the easy way to think about it is, for example, think about another example of a similar idea, say, Zionism and the idea of uh, Jewish nationhood. Uh, To some people, it is, um, they are religious Jews who will consider it a religious way. Some people are just Israelis, secular Israelis, who just consider it in terms of a passport. Um... And some people may, may not even be follow the religion anymore, but will still con- consider themselves culturally or genetically Jewish. Um, so it, it is many things to many people, and it keeps evolving. It's not as if it's a hard and fast thing. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So what motivated you wasn't to sort of show that there is a national kind of identity despite diversity. It was more from a historical No, it just, it's, it's not something that's a, the, it's, not a, it's not a central theme of my book. Mm-hmm. I just that as I was reading it, I did come across occasional people who made, why are you writing about India, but India didn't exist kind of thing. Then since I was finding so much overwhelming evidence that, you know, the India, idea of India is, you know, thousands of years old, I thought I'd just point it out because it conveniently fitted in with what I was doing. Hi, my name, my name is Dima. I'm a graduate from the CITIES program. Uh, my question is, how do you see the future of these um, slums, given that the, ci- the city is going to be uh, obviously more urbanized in the future? And how would this actually change the geography, but also the social aspect of, of, of the city? See, one of the things that I tried to uh, express through that story that I told was that slums are about flow. Just because you see them as they are now doesn't mean the people are not flowing through it. It doesn't mean the place itself is not evolving. So, for example, in Bombay, the problem is that property rights are not clear on the slums. The slums are on uh, squatted marshland. Consequently, uh, nobody owns the land. So what happens in Bombay is that this evolution that I mentioned does not happen. 
But in Delhi, because the land is clear, the, the, the slum land is clearly owned by the old farmers, this evolution happens. So in different places, the dynamics of that place, the property rights, the uh, circumstances will lead to different kinds of uh, change. I mean, as I mentioned, in one place in Mahipalpur, which I was talking about, uh, you now have cheap hotels because it's near the airport. Uh, but there is another such uh, village called Hauskhas village, which is now well in the middle of the city, which is now a very cool place to hang out, to go drinking and so on. Uh, it's expensive boutiques and so on. In fact, it is a very expensive part of town, even though it's originally a village and then a slum. I remember it as a slum uh, into the 90s, uh, or rather 80, late 80s. So these things evolve. Uh, some evolve in different ways. Some get stuck because as in Bombay, the property rights in, in, in Bombay, you need government intervention or external intervention to get them to evolve. But nonetheless, the point is, if the economy is growing and if there is social mobility, slums are in some odd way a uh, symbol of that mobility. And if they function correctly, they actually are the source through which the next generation of middle class is generated. And it has happened repeatedly through history. Of course, when it gets disrupted, this process gets disrupted, it is, it is quite painful, as you know, we know from, for example, Latin American slums. But even in the case of Latin American slums, as I, as I was trying to say, as growth, growth got going in the last decade, in fact, even Latin American slums have become somewhat less dangerous than they used to be. Front right. Big thank you, Najmar Hassan, uh, President of UK Gopio. Gopio is the global organization for people of Indian origin. Yes, well, thank you for your fascinating presentation. Well, the question is, uh, you have uh, observed and looked at India through the lens of geography. So my question is, to what extent do you find geography as a limitation to understand uh, India as a country, and did you see uh, astrology, astronomy coming together in some places? Well, I mean, obviously, I have taken a certain lens. So I have, you know, the problem with writing any book uh, like this is that you you look at it and you know push. I I have tried to be as eclectic as I can, but I recognize the limitations of you know actually physically putting it. Even if you have, I have actually almost more, enough material to write another book, uh, which I have not used, but just to keep the story focused. And uh, so, in fact, there is, there is some interesting uh, new um, uh, books are being written about how historical events may be now predicted by looking at uh, the astrology of the Ramayana. I'm not entirely convinced by it, by the way. But nonetheless, people do it. Uh, I have not done it. Uh, I've just looked at it from one angle, and I've hopefully tried to make as good a case as I can through it. In the front here. Sanjeev, uh, I bought the book. I haven't read it yet, so pardon the ignorance of my question. But um, doesn't India now risk becoming the land of hardly any rivers? I mean, you've traveled yes. uh, <laughs> the length and breadth of the country, and... You know, it is so obvious to us now that some of the greatest rivers of India are now just running dry. You can walk across the Yamuna in the, in the summer. What have you learned uh, and what should we be propagating in terms of a conservation of water, especially in the context of this massive urbanization phenomenon that you talked about? 
Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is absolutely shocking what is happening to the so-called sacred rivers of India. Uh, I mean, there's random civil engineering of all kinds, diverting water in all kinds of different ways, a lot of it wasteful, a lot of it dangerous, because people don't realize that many of the dams are being built in some of the most dangerous, tectonically dangerous places in the world. The Himalayas, as it happens to be, are very young, as I mentioned. Uh, geolo geologically speaking, they're still growing, and we are building massive dams into them, um, many of which I'm quite certain will not be able to take um, earthquakes of the kind that we know can happen in the Himalayas. So consequently, I think the story of India's rivers is, you know, at best tragic. What is interesting, however, since I, this is a book on history, this is there throughout our his, history. So, for example, the Rig Veda, which is the oldest book uh, in, uh, of Indian history, uh, and the hero of the Rig Veda is the god Indra. And Indra's great achievement in the Rig Veda is to kill the demon Viritra. And why does he kill Viritra? Because Viritra had dammed the rivers. So Indra kills Viritra and bursts the rivers and lets them free. So in some odd way, perhaps the same kind of concerns that we have now may have happened in other times. Um, now the question is, uh, who will break the dams and let the rivers flow? <laughs> Politics of water may overwhelm the politics of oil within our lifetime. In the front. Hi, my name is Arjun, and by way of introduction, uh, uh, an Indian, an LSE undergrad last year, graduated last year, and now I work at Deutsche Bank. Uh, it's a perfect place for me to be here today. <laughs> uh, my question, I, I understand that this book is about uh, the evolution of uh, India's geography, but my question is more uh, that, that would tie you both as an author of the book and as your role at, and, and your role at Deutsche. Uh, what, in your opinion, would be the way forward, or what are the implications of India's uh, position uh, in this constantly evolving subcontinent? Or strategically, uh, where do you think India is going forward with the way it is today? Well, that's a tough one. <laughs> but I mean, my own view, which I've written actually, I've written a previous book to this called India's Renaissance, A Rise of in India for a Thousand Years of Decline, um, in which <clears throat> I make the case that India's time is yet to come. There are many good things about India, despite all the political noise. Uh, not the least, of course, the fact that between 2015 and 2045, India will be at its demographic peak. Uh, do not uh, underestimate the power of this because every single country that has gone through rapid growth phase has done it during this demographic phase. Uh, of course, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for growth, but it is a necessary condition, and it will fall into place, well, in two years' time. Um, the other condition, of course, is India's politics. Uh, but again, if you look through history... Uh, the creation of a new middle class is very often a very important ingredient in political change. Um, if you look through, for example, Britain in the 19th century, uh, the emergence of a new middle class uh, led to the Great Reform Act of 1832, which is the basis of modern Britain. Uh, you know, the old rotten boroughs were removed, power shifted from the House of Lords to the House of Commons and so on. All of that happened at, at that time. Uh, modern America is due to the same phenomena. Uh, if you go back to the 
1870s and 1880s, the Vanderbilts, the Gettys, and so on, used to run America. Then the rise of the middle class uh, led to what is called the progressive era. You have Teddy Roosevelt breaks the trusts and so on. So in some sense, it's just not demographics, but the process of the creation of the new middle class is a very important part of the creation of both the economic but also the political and social um, uh, circumstances uh, that could really take India into the next uh, uh, big phase. And this group also does all kinds of demand social change, not just political change, but social change. And perhaps the big demonstrations you very recently had about a rape victim uh, is perhaps a step in that direction. Perhaps one last? Yeah, okay, one last one. One last question. So maybe in the front. Hello, uh, my name's Jim Camp. Um, you said that uh, India's slums are uniquely non-violent. Um, but you just referred- Not uniquely, but they are much more non-violent than you would think. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you just referred to uh, what's put India into the headlines recently, yeah. the rape and murder of all yes. uh, a middle-class woman by a gang of working-class men. So I thought, instead, rather than... Um, do you think it's possible that rather than being absent uh, and indiscriminate, as it is in other slums, the violence in India is there, but it's outward-looking and based on class and gender. Certainly there is violence revolving gender. There's no doubt about that. I, I hardly have to tell you that. Um, and of, but what is interesting is that anybody from this room could walk through Dharavi or any of the slums of most of Indian cities uh, and come back alive. That is not something I would recommend you to do in many other parts of the world. Um, but in the specific case of India, uh, that is true. I have myself uh, you know, walked around many, many slums at all odd hours uh, while doing these studies uh, and never felt even vaguely threatened. I mean, not just you know, came away alive. I never felt threatened even. So yes, there are uh, such episodes. Um, I mean, the people who perpetrated those, uh, the crime in this specific case did come out of a slum. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, such events happen in Indian villages. They happen in all kinds of parts of this. So I wouldn't say that it is a specifically to do with Indian slums. It may have something to do with, a very, uh, with the you know, gender biases maybe, but I don't think they reflect on Indian slums really. Given how quick that answer was, maybe we'll take one last one. go back right. Hello. Hi. Right, hi, sorry, hi. My name is Jagjit Nazrin. Uh, quick question. Is it more than just urbanization? Is it westernization of India? And if so, uh, what does that mean for Indian identity and culture? Okay. Um, I'm actually not a great... Uh, I'm not somebody who really fears the idea of westernization. I would call it modernization, uh, in the sense that Indian civilization is not some sort of a pure uh, civilization unsullied by external uh, influences. The genetics of India is extremely mixed. Uh, the civilization that we, it may have an identity does not, again, mean it hasn't evolved or that it hasn't. I mean, there are huge influences of all kinds of things into India going back to ancient times. Uh, even Sanskrit, for example, is full of Greek words, incidentally. Um, so India has evolved. Its, its civilization is, in fact, about absorbing uh, influences from the rest of the world. 
that has in no way diminished its sense of itself or its richness. In fact, it's added to it. So I think India will go through this uh, phase. It will take influences from the West and it will take influences from um, the East as well. Why not? Um, but that, I don't think, in any way uh, makes India less. I mean, if you watch a Bollywood film, for example, um, it's a medium that was not invented in India. Uh, the film storylines are very often pulled off from some other part of the world. That Even the music is sometimes stripped off some other uh, music from the West or other places. But nobody will ever be left in any doubt that it is a Hindi movie. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That brings us to the end. Thanks a lot. <laughs>